Welcome to our exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for Friday, January 8th. Each week, we check in with a leader across the firm to get a quick take on what they're watching in markets. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. And today, we're sharing a segment of a client call that was hosted earlier today. The call was titled, The Biden Agenda, Perspectives on the 2021 Policy Priorities. And for this Markets Update podcast, we'll hear from Jan Hatzius, the firm's chief economist, on his outlook for the global economy in 2021 under the Biden administration. The conversation was moderated by Joe Wall, who works in our Goldman Sachs Office of Government Affairs. Now, over to Joe. I would like to bring in one of my colleagues at the firm, Jan Hatzius. Jan is the head of the Global Investment Research Division and the firm's chief economist. Jan, hello and good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you. Uh, you came into the year with a clearly above consensus growth forecast. However, today's U.S. unemployment report showed a 140,000 payroll decline in December, the first drop since April. How much does today's number worry you? Well, it certainly illustrates that the coronavirus escalation that we've seen over the last couple of months, the third wave, if you look at it at a, at a national level, is having significant negative effects. I mean, it's a, it's a stark reminder that the virus is still a you know, very significant depressant on, on economic activity. And it, uh, you know, it is consistent, I think, with the, with the idea that this, uh, this, this, this drag is still out there. That said, it was very, very concentrated. It was uh, basically due to a nearly 500,000 decline in leisure and hospitality employment. So if you take out the, uh, that particular sector, which of course is most sensitive to the virus, especially in the winter when you can't do outdoor dining, you had a 350,000 increase in, in employment. And I would say other very high frequency indicators that we've been seeing recently have also been mixed rather than uniformly terrible. So if you look at the ISM purchasing manager indices, for example, those were actually pretty good in December. They, they both went up to, to very high levels. The high-frequency spending indicators, as far as consumer is concerned, seem to be holding up okay. Uh, so it's, you know, clearly there, there are some clear headwinds, and this is an illustration. But uh, I think overall, my broader view would be that while the economy is going through a much slower stretch, it is, it is sort of holding up, and it's not as sensitive to virus and restrictions as was the case earlier in 2020, especially in the, in the spring. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the current situation. As we get into uh, the, the spring, you know, beyond January, February, we are expecting a strong recovery. Nothing's changed about that. Our overall forecast for 2021, if you take GDP is 6.4%, that is more than uh, two percentage points above the consensus of forecasters. Uh, you know, that consensus is probably moving, moving gradually higher, but we're definitely on the optimistic side and there's no reason on the back of today's report to make, uh, to make any changes of that. And, and the drivers of this are really basically two things. Virus becomes significantly less of an issue, partly for sort of seasonal reasons. As you get into the spring, temperature plays a role. And more importantly, because we think that 
the uh, vaccination, which has gotten off to a slow start, picks up. And then in the course of the, of the second quarter, we basically managed to generate herd immunity where you know, the virus is still an issue, individuals still get, get infected, but you, the risk of large-scale outbreaks is significantly lower than, 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 than it has been on the back of previous infections and, more importantly, uh, the vaccination schedule. So that's, that's one driver. Uh, the other driver is fiscal policy, and you know, obviously we'll want to talk about, the, about that maybe, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, that's a good transition. How is the outcome of, of Tuesday's elections in Georgia going to affect U.S. policy and, and economic growth from your perspective? Yeah, I think the, the most immediate implication is that there is likely to be another COVID relief package. It's likely to be, again, fairly sizable on top of the $900 billion package that we just had. Uh, we think probably something on the order of another $750 billion, it, where we have a, a, a few key components. The largest one, single one would be uh, additional tax rebates, $300 billion. We're looking for $2,000 per person when combined with the 600 that we had in the first package. It's you know, that's, a, that's a, an estimate. It's conceivable that it would be, you know, maybe even more. I mean, it's conceivable that you have $2,000 a person on top of the, the 600, but that's not our baseline expectation. Baseline would be uh, that, it, that it totals 600 for lower and middle income earners. Then next item on the list is aid to state and local governments to the tune of maybe 200 billion or so, which is, uh, you know, obviously a, a key priority for, for Democrats and has been the sticking point, as you know, in a lot of the fiscal negotiations over the last few months. And then probably additional unemployment insurance top-ups. We have, six, uh, uh, we, we have $300 per week uh, into March, but nothing beyond that. And, and we think in this coming package, we'll probably see six, 300 a week extended through the middle of the year and then gradually phase down as we get into the second half of the year. Uh, and then and, and you know and then finally uh, probably some additional uh, money for sort of more more odds and ends. I mean there are a number of other things as you know that are potentially on the on the list. Student loans might be one, renter assistant might be one. It's you know hard to Hard to know the, the the details, but ultimately 750 seems like a reasonable baseline expectation. We think it's probably going to be relatively quick in the you know February timeframe, maybe maybe early March, and you know the the urgency is slightly lower than it would have been without the 900 billion dollar package that was already already passed. But I think it's still going to be relatively quick. Beyond that, our expectation is that you know, some parts of the Biden program, the longer-term Biden program beyond COVID relief are probably going to be passed eventually, but I think that's going to take longer, maybe middle of the year, maybe third quarter. And there we're looking for some tax increases on corporations and maybe upper, upper income earners that are 
then used to fund some of the longer-term priorities for, uh, for, for President-elect Biden in the areas of healthcare, education, infrastructure, climate. And that's, I think, harder to know just because it's, it's further away. Some of these things are more ideologically controversial. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, we do think something will be passed. The, the number one item on our list on the, on the tax side is probably an increase in the corporate income tax rate. Uh, we're penciling in 25% rather than the 28% that Biden had in his, uh, in his program, because after all, it's a 50-50 Senate, and so it's really the most moderate Democrats that are going to ultimately decide what is, what is acceptable. But, uh, but, but that's, a, that's a second step. I don't think that that's going to be part of the initial, initial fiscal package. Um, so, so yeah, that's, expect- that, that's the basic uh, the basic fiscal uh, fiscal implication. Thank you, Jan. How do you expect the other major economies to perform in 2021, especially Europe and China? So we're we're generally uh, optimistic for you know COVID recovery across the those economies that have been hit very hard by COVID and haven't already recovered. Um, and so, they, you know, where there's still a substantial amount of shortfall in output and, and employment, we think that as the virus becomes less of an issue, because we see vaccination and herd immunity, ultimately, there's a lot of room for, for improvement. And that's true in a number of economies in the, in the world. It's actually more true in Europe than it is in the U.S., because the U.S. has already recovered a larger share of the of the previous downturn, for uh, you know for a variety of reasons, and that uh, there there are obviously some differences across economies in terms of the amount of stimulus that's been that's been out there, the extent of uh, the lockdowns, the renewed lockdowns. Uh, Europe is further behind the U.K. in particular and Spain in particular, so those are the the weakest places, but as vaccination starts and as the lockdowns d- diminish and policymakers continue to be you know, pretty supportive in 2021, and I think that's going to be true everywhere, and you know, probably they're going to add support on the, on the monetary side, that then I think we'll see you know, a strong recovery. So again, we're in the you know, 5 to 6% range in terms of GDP growth in uh, you know, in, in Europe, for example, which is also well above the consensus. And I think that probably is still going to be true in 2020-22. So, you know, qualitatively, it's not a, not a dramatically different story um, compared with the, with the U.S. One place that is quite different is China. And the reason is that China is already back at the, the pre-crisis level. In fact, China is basically back at the the, the pre-COVID trend. So if you just draw a trend line through the level of GDP in 2018, 2019 and extrapolate it forward, China's already gotten more or less back to that. And so there's just less room for additional recovery because China has managed to suppress the virus to a greater degree than other countries and has managed to bring economic activity back. They've done that also with some, not only public health measures, but also some very aggressive stimulus measures on monetary and fiscal policy. So those, the settings for policy 
are very expansionary and Chinese policymakers are worried that that's going to set the stage for financial imbalances and, and, and you know, maybe asset bubbles and lending bubbles that burst in the future. So they're going to want to take a little bit of a step back, actually. They, they feel like it's no longer as urgent to be running very expansionary policies and, you know, maybe you should be bringing down credit growth and limit the size of the, the budget deficit somewhat. So that China is really the only major economy where our forecast is not above consensus, actually slightly below, uh, you know, 8% in, in 2021, with a lot of that really being driven by sequential increases in output that already occurred in 2020 that are showing up in the, in the 2021 average. But, uh, but yeah, our, our, our general view is places that are still depressed, whether that's economies or particular sectors of the economy, that are still depressed because of the virus should see the biggest increases as you go through this uh, this year under our assumptions for how the medical news is going to evolve. Uh, despite a rapid recovery and growth, you expect central banks in developed economies to remain dovish. How long is that going to last? We are, yeah, yeah we're, we're generally dovish on uh, monetary policy. And the reason is basically that we have strong growth in the forecast, but we're climbing out of a deep hole. And when you're climbing out of a deep hole, you can have a period where growth is strong. Nevertheless, inflation is subdued and monetary policymakers will want to be uh, supportive. I think that's going to be true in the US. I think the Fed's going to be generally dovish. I think the ECB is going to be generally dovish. The, the Bank of England, you know, certainly the Bank of Japan, uh, and, and, you know, most importantly, I think that's going to be visible in terms of policy rates. We don't expect hikes in the federal funds rate or the European deposit rate or the, the different policy rates in different places until 2024, 2025. We did pull forward slightly our first hike in the funds rate a couple of days ago from early 2025 to the second half of 2024 on the back of the further upward revision to growth that we made after the, the Georgia runoffs. There is you know, some impact. If you have somewhat more growth, you push down the unemployment rate somewhat more quickly, that is going to mean somewhat more inflation, at least in, you know, in any, any kind of normal economic forecast. But we don't think it's going to have a very large impact because the relationship between the labor market and inflation, it's there. It's a statistical, you, you can show it statistically, but it's just not very strong. It's, you know, in the jargon, the Phillips curve is quite flat. And so that's why uh, rate hikes are still a ways off. In, the, in Europe, we don't expect any hikes in, until 2025. And uh, you know, other central banks are similar. One thing that is probably a bit more of a question for the nearer term is what happens with the still very rapid pace of asset purchases that you're seeing in a number of countries, including the US. The Federal Reserve is still buying $120 billion of treasury and uh, mortgage-backed securities per month. And that's a, that's a more live debate. And there's some d discussion about whether maybe they already start in 2021 to taper those asset purchases. And there, there have been a number of Fed speakers over the last couple of weeks that have 
said, yeah, maybe if things go well and the, the, the vaccine is being rolled out and we get more stimulative fiscal policy, perhaps we can start to taper at the end of this year. That's a possibility. Our expectation would be that it's probably going to be a little bit later, more like 2022. But uh, that's, um, you know, that, that's, that's less clear. And it's partly less clear because the Fed's been very clear what the criteria are for the first hike in the funds rate. They've said, you need to be at full employment, you need to be at 2% inflation year on year, and you need to be confident that you're set for a period of moderate overshooting of 2%. For the asset purchasers, they've only said, we want to see a substantial improvement, but have basically declined to specify what a substantial improvement means. So there's an extra layer of uncertainty because you have to sort of come up with your own definition of what might be a substantial improvement. And, uh, and so that's why it's, uh, it's, it's cl not only closer, but also somewhat more uncertain in terms of the, how it relates to, to, to the economy. Jan, what lessons should legislators and monetary policymakers take away from the COVID crisis so far? Look, I think there are, you know, of course, uh, lessons on, you know, health policy and, you know, just the a broader definition of the kinds of shocks that can can hit an hit an economy. I mean, we knew that pandemics were were a risk uh, at some level, and they have been kind of pandemic scares uh, in the in the past. But I don't think anybody had really thought sufficiently about just how devastating a virus outbreak, uh, you know, even even a virus outbreak that falls short of the you know, the the lethality of perhaps some some past uh, some 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 past pandemics. How devastating that can be for for an economy that relies on you know to a significant degree still face face to face inter interaction. I think that's that's one. Um, on, two on a more positive note, perhaps the uh, we we have found that market economies are quite adaptable. And, you know, while there was, of course, a massive hit to output in, in, in March and April, it, it's been very impressive to see how, uh, you know, economic activity and work have shifted, how much we've managed to shift to work from home without really losing a significant amount of productivity. I think that's been visible at the from from a, from a corporate perspective. I think a, a lot of employers have been very positively surprised at uh, you know, just how how productive working from home has been. I'm, I'm sure many employees might take a somewhat different view because you know, of course, there are a lot of people are struggling with working from home and having having their kids at home. And, you know, I don't want to minimize the, the difficulties, but just in terms of the ability to still produce output, it's been it's been pretty impressive. In fact, when we look at the productivity numbers, uh, we have have really been surprised to the to the high side. This has been, a, you know, we've seen sizable increases in, in productivity this year. Now, there are a lot of issues around interpreting these data. Some of it is because you're eliminating, or you, at least you've, you're currently hitting hardest some of the lower productivity parts of the economy. Labor intensive means lower productivity like restaurants and, uh, and hotels.
but but overall the the news has been pretty pretty positive it's also been been quite impressive to see how uh, relatively quickly goods consumption has recovered as the channels of distribution have shifted from in-person shopping to to online that was already already in train of course but it's been massively accelerated by the uh, by the pandemic but again it's 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 worked you know it it's not all positive because there are clearly some very significant disruptions that are associated with that if you look at you know the the what's what's been going on in in the retail sector but it has worked in terms of actually getting goods to to people so that's that's the second lesson adaptability lastly i think from a macroeconomic perspective maybe in some ways closest to home in terms of macroeconomic policy we have seen you know yet another crisis after 2008 that i think has to be described as a keynesian triumph uh, as a you know when you hit with a very large shock and the you know there's always a question of you know how much is too much on on monetary stimulus and on fiscal stimulus and there are always some cautious voices that might say you really need to go slowly because of the concern about you know currency crises or bond market crises or high inflation but two in two two large crises as a in a in a row we've seen that doing more and doing more earlier has turned out to be the 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 right choice that doesn't mean that you know the most expansionary policy setting is always the best choice. I'm certainly not saying that. But when you're, when you're hit with a very large shock to, to, to the economy, to aggregate demand, to incomes, it is extremely important for policymakers to lean against that very, very decisively. And I think that really was the, the key thing that policymakers in many countries, including in the United States, you know, despite all of the problems that we have in the U.S. political system and the and the, and the you know division, the the way that uh, the U.S. political system and and policymakers came together to not only provide a large amount of monetary stimulus through you know a technocratic institution like the Fed, but also this extremely large fiscal package in the in the CARES Act, I think was uh, uh, it was a was a rousing success. Of course, we're not yet out of this crisis. There's still more that uh, I'm sure we'll learn, but at least at this point, to me, this looks like a, like, like a, yeah, as I said, uh, a Keynesian triumph in these two crises. Well, thank you for being with us today, Jan. And that brings us to the end of today's session. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. The podcast was recorded on Friday, January 8th, 2020. Thank you for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.